This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Afternoon Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 4th of September, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is the politics of education. Welcome to the show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 15th radio show as a hostess, and I'm still very much delighted to share this experience in your company. I had to take a few weeks off to really properly rest and enjoy my time on holiday, and I'm freshly rested and ready to start a new school year in your company every Sunday at 5 p.m. But first, if there's any new listeners, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Maud, your hostess, and I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach humanities, languages such as French as well as Spanish, and also history and geography. I have experience as a teacher in the charity sector, and you can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. So today's topic is the politics of education. So why am I interested in talking about about politics with you today? Well, it's pretty simple. I've just um, read the news lately even when when I was on holiday. And what struck me, what really um, I wanted to highlight today is how politics affect our daily lives and as teachers, as parents, and also as students. We are facing a very difficult winter this year, this season coming, because we have the problems with energy prices going up. We have the problem of more than 10 years of austerity in politics and its effect on our students and our educators. And also we have the aftermath of the biggest pandemic in my lifetime and possibly in most of everybody's lifetime with the COVID pandemic. So this is a very difficult situation we have to face. Now, for most of us, we've had our GCSE or A-levels results. I hope they were what you expected for you, yourself, or your students. But now we need to start with a fresh year. So I went on Twitter, which is one of my favorite uh, social media app for communicating with fellow teachers. And I did a little poll. I asked teachers if they thought educators should be political and if education was a political act. 
And you know what? I was really shocked, I have to say, because 41% of the people who answered my little poll on Twitter said that education was not political. And that really, I find shocking. Why? Well, because if you look at the words, and you know what? I'm a linguist, so I always look at where words come from. The word politics derives from politique, coming from French, and also has a common root with Latin, and Latin took it over from the Greek. We have politikos, and also polites, which is a citizen, and the word polis, which is the root word, means city. So when we talk about politics, we talk about the city. It's not so much the place, where people congregate and live, as opposed to rural areas where people live, um, but there's less people. No, it's more the place that people inhabit, and it's the act of living together and getting organized as a system and as a society. So, polis, city in Greek, means the place where we live together. And now, because we live in societies, we are organized as system, whether we live in a democracy or a dictatorship or in a um, um, monarchy, we are all organized in, as a system. And the place of education is real and it's embedded in the political system, in the way we organize our society. So today I want to focus on that topic because I think it's been forgotten a bit or maybe it's been used in a way that doesn't reflect its etymology. As an educator and as a teacher, the act of teaching is political by definition because it's embedded in a society and it has a purpose in a society. Now I want, you, I want us to reflect on what is the role of the educator in that political system and in that organization. So today's discussion will be on the topic of the politics of education. And this is mostly relevant to educators in English speaking world and also in the whole world, to parents who are interested in what their children are learning and what is the vision of education in the country they live in, and to anyone who's curious and savvy and wants to know more. So, again, if you want to interact with me, you can join us live, or you can also tweet at profprofmfl. Now, I explained where the word politics comes from, and it comes from Greek. Greek culture is what gave us the idea of democracy a very refined organization of society with people voicing their, their choices. Now, the politics of education. If you look back at the past, and remember, I do teach history, and for me, if you know your past, you can better understand your present and then change your future. It is an empowering thing to study history, and I recommend anyone at any age to read or learn about history. So education in the past has always been for the elite, for the powerful and for the resourceful and for the people who wanted to have a function and power in society. So if you look at 
early Rome and ancient Rome and education, it was the privilege of the rich. Because you remember there was two classes of citizens. There was the free citizens, Roman citizens, and then there were the ones who were not. So those who were outside of the Roman Empire were barbarians. And those who were inside, apologies, inside the, the Roman Empire were either slaves or citizens or women. Obviously, women had a completely different status. They could never be part of the democratic system. So rich people in ancient Rome wanted their, their children to be educated. So they had access to schooling. And we have early ancient stone carving depicting students at a school. So you can easily recognize a teacher. It's usually a bearded man in a white toga. And the ones without beards are male young teenagers and they are studying. They were using stilets and wax tablets to write. And you can see these carvings if you go to the British Museum. You can even see the wax tablets where they were writing on. Now, the poor did not receive any education as such. Saying that, the poor had access to skills. They were taught skills to survive in Rome, ancient Rome. And if they were slaves, they were taught the skills they needed to serve. For instance, if they had to um, clean the house or take care of the heating system, in the in the spa or in the they they had lots of skills that were taught but they didn't have an education the way we see it they didn't sit and learn from a teacher and they didn't write often if you had a slave who was educated it's because that slave was uh, supposed to have scribing um, skills and he was supposed to write down and count so maybe he was helping a merchant or um, he had accountancy tasks. Now, most of the slaves or most of the poor in ancient Rome did not receive an education, so they couldn't read nor write, unless they had parents who wanted to impart that knowledge, and that was done inside the home. But the richest kids, the richest children in Rome were schooled, and they all shared a private tutor. Either they went to school or they had a private tutor in their homes. Now, can I just remind you, it was only the boys. Some girls were very educated. Um, most of the empresses or the family members of the emperors who were female could perfectly read, write, poetry. They were very educated, but it was done by their families. Now, learning in ancient Rome schools was very, very disciplined. And we had slaves who were there to make sure that the students were learning properly and physical corporal punishment was completely acceptable. I'm going to quote Quintilian, who was a teacher, just like me, but in the first century AD. So Quintilian speaking, the teacher must decide how to deal with his pupil. Some boys are lazy, unless forced to work, Others do not like being controlled. Some will respond to fear, but others are paralyzed by it. Give me a boy who is encouraged by praise, delighted by success, and ready to weep over failure. Such a boy must be encouraged by appeals to his ambitions. 
So it's quite obviously a 2,000-year-old um, vision of education. But it's interesting to see, first, that obviously it's always a he. Uh, it's always a boy in ancient Rome education. And um, they already recognize that not everybody is really academic and keen on learning. So pretty much the same sort of situation we find in 2022. So education in ancient Rome was a privilege. It was imparted either at home or in very, very small uh, classroom with a private tutor and corporal punishment was considered a tool in a teacher toolbox. Remember, it was mostly about reading, writing and a little bit of poetry as well. So I can see that Gabriel is um, keen on talking with us today about the politics of education. So let's see if Gabriel can speak to us. Hello, Gabriel. Can you try and connect with us, Gabriel, if you want to share with us about... Okay, so Gabriel will call us later. In the meantime, I'm going back to my ancient Rome. So if we go back a little bit after the fall of the Roman Empire, which happened in the 4th and 5th century after um, AD. So after the collapse of that very organized Roman society, we had a long time when I guess people had to survive in the darkest part of the Middle Ages. So there was not much thought for education for normal people. The only ones who were educated were the ones who were part of the Catholic Church. So monks, priests, nuns. It was a very, very religiously based education. It was in Latin only um, or Greek. And it was definitely the richest children were sent to um, nunneries or monasteries to become monks or nuns. Some of the royal or the aristocracy received an education as well at home if a private tutor could be hired. So pretty much like in ancient Rome. But the biggest difference is the place that religion took in the curriculum. So nobility or religious people but mostly education, purpose of, edu of, of learning. Now, ancient schools, as we said, the one in Rome and the one in the medieval time, were not like the schools of today because they only focused on very, very specific skills. Now, the development that we've seen over centuries was to maybe add more skills, such as music, for boys and particularly girls in the Renaissance, uh, you had women who were taught, or I should say young girls, who were taught how to take care of an estate. So they had basic numeracy, basic maths, but everything was for a purpose. We taught girls to play music because we wanted girls to play music when we had guests coming over to show the family skills. We also wanted boys to be able to read Latin and count because that was the best way to get an education that led to a job as a trader, as a merchant. It's very, very recent, the thought that everybody should have access to education, actually. And I think this is what was lost when I talked to educators on Twitter and I, and I asked if education is a political act. We lost the fact that 200 years ago, the majority of people did not receive an education that was 
about maths and numeracy and literacy, or they didn't. Most of the people had to work as soon as they were physically able, because earning a living was more important than anything. And also remember, uh, in ancient Rome, girls were married from the age of 13. So you wouldn't have a very diverse education, even if you were a very, very rich uh, Roman girl, because you would be you, you would have another purpose, that of procreation. So it's only 200 years max ago that we realized everybody should be able to read and write. And can I just remind you that it is the norm in Western Europe and in many countries, but it is still not the norm in most of the third world, where education is a private affair, education is only for a minority, and it's only for the upper middle class or the elite. The mass of people doesn't have access to education. So it is a political decision that we are reaping the benefit from 200 years down the line in Europe or in America. But it is recent. And because it's new, we need to really see where it's going. So in the United States, for instance, the first schools began in the original colonies in the 17th century. And uh, um, most of them were done in Latin. So the first Latin school was opened in Boston in 1635. And the earliest, the earliest schools in America were focusing on the same things as ancient Rome schools, which is reading, writing, and numeracy. I'm not going to really say it's mathematics, because I doubt they were studying equations. I think it was more numeracy, to be able to do accountancy and balance the books. Now, um, it's much later, and it's only after the American Revolution, that education became a priority. And this is why I think we need to remember as educators that education is a political act. It's because it happened because of a political decision. It is the idea of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. It was developed by French philosophers who wanted to encourage human rights and the uh, Renaissance ideal of the humanist, the person who can read, influence, shape its future, his or her future. So it is definitely a political decision. And this was not straightforward. State schools are very recent and they were invented for one purpose. And it's funny that most of the people I talked to on Twitter said education was not a political thing. Uh, because actually, the purpose of free state education at its root was to provide citizens enough knowledge to make an informed decision in order to vote. So I think this is extremely important to remember. We started free state education, I would say in the Victorian age, so 1800, maybe a little bit earlier in some places, but most of it in the developed world, it was in the 1800s. And we started it because we gave the right to vote to some citizens. Remember, it was mostly male citizens. And for some, it was those who had a property. 
if you didn't have a property, you were a laborer, you didn't need education, you didn't need, you didn't need to vote. Now, in order to vote, you were supposed to be able to read political speeches and make a decision on that. So to be able to read a leaflet, you needed to be able to read and you needed an education. So the free state education was created in order to allow citizens to vote. That's the origin of it. Voting and education are linked in modern societies. Because you need to have a critical mind, you need to be able to make an informed decision. It's your democratic duty as a citizen. So obviously I did explain that most citizens were male, most were white, I'm talking about American uh, education for instance, and most of them either had property or later on it was anyone who was a male uh, above the, a certain age. So to be able to be part of society you needed to vote and for that you needed an education. So now that we've established that there wouldn't be state education without the voting and a political action, we need to look back on female education because remember the right to vote for women happened way later, after state free education. So if we look back at our most famous novelists in England, I would say, I would argue it's Jane Austen. So Jane Austen received a very good education for the times. She, um, obviously, if you want to read more about her, there's a great uh, essay written by Catherine Sutherland entitled Female Education, Reading and Jane Austen. She published it in 2014. So uh, Catherine Sutherland. Now, Jane Austen had a little, uh, had a sister, Cassandra, and they both went to schools, which shows that Jane Austen comes from a family with a bit of money because there was money to spare on educating girls. So they went to schools in Oxford and Southampton in 1783. So after the, the American Revolution and just a little bit before the French one. So the school was called Abbey House Reading and it was a boarding school for daughters of the clergy or the minor gentry. So as I said, quite similar to what was going on in France or in Germany, the only girls or most of the boys who were from the, I would say, upper middle class had access to education. So Jane was about 10 when she went to a boarding school. Before that, she might have learned how to read with her father, Reverend George Austin, who was obviously a church man. Um, he also had to make a living because his clerical income wasn't enough. So he was taking on boys as boarders and he was teaching them, I assume, Latin as well as English. And because he, was, he had boys boarding, he could teach his daughters at the same time. And they also had access to the school library in, his father, in her father's house. So Jane Austen learned with boys and she focused on French, that was the most fashionable language of the time, history, geography, because she was a girl, to that we need to add needlework, drawing, music, and dancing. Now, obviously, Jane Austen's brothers went on to Oxford University where they could complete their education, and then they went traveling for a year on a grand tour of Europe. How very genteel. 
uh, Jane couldn't do that because she was a woman. And yet she was the one who made a universal contribution to literature. So I would say um, spending more money on her education was actually the best thing to do. So we see the limits of uh, female education in Europe because it was only fee paying and also it depended on family support. Now, the first proto-feminists were writers such as Catherine Macaulay and also Anna Leticia Barbel and my favorite, Mary Wollstonecraft. You all know Mary Wollstonecraft because she wrote A Vindication for the Rights of Women. And also, she was Mary Shelley's mother. And if you ask me, who's Mary Shelley? Mary Shelley is the one who wrote Frankenstein. So Mary Wollstonecraft, I think it's the irony of the time, she was the first one to advocate for women to get an education. And she wrote beautiful, um, a beautiful pamphlet to promote the cause of women. Sadly, I think it's the irony of life. Mary Wollstonecraft died in childbirth, giving birth to Mary Shelley. Isn't that ironic? Anyway, so I'm going to quote uh, one of these proto-feminists, the radical Catherine Macaulay. She writes in 1790, that's quite a long time ago, in her letters on education. She says that we shouldn't confine girls to the education, which is, as she calls, the ornamental parts. And by ornamental, she says, she means drawing, music, and French and Italian. Because why were we asking girls to learn this? Because we wanted them to find a husband, possibly a richer husband than their own fathers. So she says, and she recommended in her letters on education, the principal study I would recommend is history. I know of nothing equally proper to entertain and improve at the same time, or that is so likely to form and strengthen your judgment. So I'm loving this because obviously I teach history, but I completely agree with Catherine Macaulay. History is empowering ourselves. If you know your past, as I always say, you understand your present and you can change your future. So I did explain that free state education was a political decision it was in order to equip citizens to be able to vote. That was the main, the main goal of education, of free state education. The first countries that offered state education were mostly England and France and America. Obviously, remember, it wasn't for girls and it wasn't for people of color most of the time. So let's always have that in mind. Now that I've explained with the etymology of the word politics and some historical facts about how we came to give an education to our children, I think we can agree that it was a political decision. So, is it still a political decision? If it is not, should it be? And if it is, which politics are we following when we're educating our students in a state school in 2022? I think these are the most important questions we should think about for the next part of our podcast. But first, 
because we need to know more about a present as well, I'm going to play the news and I'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you, dear listeners. Stay tuned. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Daily Mirror runs a story on school places with headlines claiming that in some areas where schools are oversubscribed, nearly 9 out of 10 parents do not get a place for their child at their first choice secondary school. The article names specific schools in Wolverhampton and Lambeth as the hardest secondary schools to get into, with the primary from Liverpool named as the most difficult to get into. As children return to school for the new academic year, applications for those set to start primary or secondary in September 2023 are set to open soon. The deadline for secondary places is October 31st and January the 15th next year for primary. According to figures published in the article, 83% of applicants got their first choice of secondary school for September 2022, a small increase on the 2021 figure of 81%. The proportion of primary school applicants who received their first choice remained at 92%. A full list of England's most oversubscribed schools is published on the Daily Mirror website. In Scotland, council workers due to go out on strike next week have suspended their action after unions received a new pay offer from local authority leaders. The Unison, Unite and GMB unions agreed to suspend strikes in education and in waste services. The Unison, Unite and GMB unions agreed to suspend strikes in education and in waste services. The high profile waste worker strike has seen rubbish build up in city centres but action was also set to affect schools and early years provision as members of Unison were set to walk out. 
Aberdeen Live also reports on possible strike action by Scottish teachers after what unions describe as an insulting pay offer. The 5% pay increase was rejected by the Educational Institute of Scotland's Executive Committee and they have opened a ballot for members concerning industrial action. Members of the union have until the 16th of September to vote on the action. Following the return to school for the new academic year, Eastern Eye reports on advice to schools around school attendance. The advice recommends close partnership work with councils, targeted family support and home visits to address barriers to attendance. These form part of a package of new approaches to ensure that more children are in school every day. The Department for Education is also launching a three-year one-to-one attendance monitoring pilot aimed at tackling the factors behind non-attendance such as bullying and mental health issues. The scheme will be launched in Middlesbrough this year before expanding to other areas next year. A new attendance data visualisation tool is also expected later in September. In some countries on the continent of Africa, a significant barrier to school attendance comes as a result of pregnancy in adolescent girls, according to Human Rights Watch. The organisation says that whilst many countries now have laws and policies in place to protect girls' education, there are still shortcomings, with at least 10 African Union member countries still having no laws related to protecting the retention of students who are pregnant or are adolescent mothers. More on this story can be found on the Human Rights Watch website. In Wales, mandatory sex education lessons will go ahead in the new school term as the High Court rules in favour of the plan. A group of five parents lost their legal challenge to block the lessons in a hearing on the 31st of August. The group wanted to withdraw their children from the mandatory lessons or stop the rollout of relationships and sexual education altogether. The parents had already been granted a judicial review to be heard in November. RSE is part of the statutory new curriculum in Wales although half of secondary schools are delaying the new curriculum until 2023. This is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I complete my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The topic today is why is my upload speed lower than my download speed? In previous episodes, we've discussed bandwidth and the more devices, the more demand, but internet service providers only tend to advertise their download speed. Why is this? Well, because it's higher. Let's take a trip back to the beginning of the internet for general public use. If you're old enough to remember dial-up and what we used to use the internet for pre-2006 when we were introduced to the Facebook boom, the internet was more like a library. You go, search for a book or a web page, use the book for your research, then return it. Traffic or knowledge is mostly one way, downloading to you. The only real use for uploading for the day-to-day user of the internet was to request a web page, a very small amount of data, and to send the odd email. Most things we did were all based on downloading. This is called an asymmetric connection. Downloading is given more bandwidth as it's the most used. This to date is still the fact. Most people download more than they upload. With data transmission being restricted by the size of transmission media being used, it makes sense for there to be more bandwidth dedicated to downloading than to uploading. Uploading has become increasingly more important for people since the development of apps like Facebook. Although developed in 2004, in 2006, due to increasingly better phone technology and the trend of documenting your life and posting it for others to see, the speed that you can upload has become more important. However, if a video or image takes a while to upload, we can do something else. If what you're watching stops, it's the end of the world. 
If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. As we return to work, why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech for the new academic year. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So we were talking about politics of education and the fact that we have a duty of bringing our students to a certain level of learning and knowledge, bring our students to an understanding of their role as citizens. And how do we do this? Because we need to remain objective and neutral, but we also need to teach them how to have a critical mind. So I'm very much interested in talking about some inspiring educators that are famous for their politics. Whether or not I agree with them is irrelevant. I just like to see educators who are being political. So the next person I want to talk about after mentioning Louise Michel and Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks, the next person is uh, kicking up a storm on social media very often, and it's Catherine Birbalsing. So she's infamous for being an ardent conservative with a small c, and she's in involved in the current government. Um, she's a very successful head teacher of a school called Michaela in Wembley. It's a free school, and it's a very, very strict school. Yet, it's a school that has amazing results. So I did visit the school and I saw that the students were extremely well behaved, very pleasant, looked happy to come to school. And even though they did tell me that they thought the change from year six to year seven was really difficult, they were happy to be there and they were conscious that they were receiving a very good education. So on Twitter, the head teacher is called Miss Snuffy and she's very vocal and very political. She gets a lot of very nasty comments on Twitter, which I completely um, disagree with. I think anyone should be able to work and uh, be respected for what they endeavor to do. I think Miss Bielbelsing is very, very successful and she's trying to put her money where her mouth is. She's trying to encourage students to do their best. Now, as I'm in a completely different, different political field, there's lots of things I disagree with, but I'm really impressed by her results. And if you only want an education that is hitting the target set by Ofsted, well, Michael is perfect for that, the school. Now, I'm not sure this model of education is best for a certain type of student who is very shy and very arty and and very uh, well-mannered and because i think they might be very scared in such an environment because it's so strict and and relentless i don't think many many middle class parents would want this type of education for their children because they do value self-expression and, and risk-taking maybe more. But I think it might be a great educational system for children who lack boundaries because their parents are too tired or they're working three jobs to be able to heat the home and feed the children. So it might just be the right school for the a certain type of student and not 
for all students. But what matters is that it's a good school and it has politics involved. I'm personally interested in democratic principles in education, but I'm very much aware that it's also a special kind of audience type of school. I know people have been through the democratic system. It's usually private schools. It's schools where you choose your timetable, you only study the subjects you're interested in, you are involved in cleaning, cooking, and taking care of your school building. So it's a, it's a world apart from uh, Mrs. Birbal Singh Michaela's school. Yet I'm interested in both, because I think what matters is that we offer choice, a little bit more like the democratic side of state education, we are forming citizens, so we should give them a choice of school types. And maybe I'm being political, <laughs> which is the whole point, isn't it, as an educator? But I think we should offer as many different schools as there are people. So that if you have a student who is very arty and shy and introverted and, and doesn't like a, a, a loud environment and, and wants more nature, we should have a school for that student. Maybe a school like Summerhill, which is a very, very avant-garde type of democratic school. And if you have a student or a child who's very risk-taking and and finds difficult, finds organizing himself or herself difficult, is not focused and gets distracted. I think my color school is really good because it's extremely strict and rigid and it works. And sometimes some children need a lot of guidance and discipline because they don't have it inside them yet. And or I'm also very much interested in schools that do more sports and schools that do languages, schools that are forest schools. I think they're wonderful. You know, every child should have a choice of school type. Now, because I'm trying to be political, to make a point, I also think we should let schools manage themselves. I do believe in decentralizing education. I do believe that Ofsted has too much power on, on schools. And um, I think we should trust teachers more. We should let teachers with SLT work together to devise their school, to make it a very personal and creative environment that fits the students in the area maybe, or fits the geography. If you are in the countryside, you might need to focus more on space and nature and what's around you. And if you are in a different environment, in an urban, short of space, but maybe more museum, you might change and, and have more off-site education. What matters is to have the freedom and the creativity and the means, and that's when I'm getting even more political, the means to provide the best education for our students. And maybe this is the most political statement I'm going to say today. The politics of education is also fighting to get more and better education and for that we need money but we need money well spent how do we spend money well in education i think we need to have a preventative 
vision of education. We should provide the best for all children from the age of zero so that we don't have to just play catch up later on. But that's a whole new world of ideas I'm broaching onto. Now, I'm conscious of the time. Um, I just want to, I hope that you found this interesting, that it led you to rethink the purpose of a state education, the reasons why we educate our, our students. And maybe next time we can talk about the way we do so, the choice of subject, the curriculum. Is it appropriate in 2022? Can we make it a better curriculum? This is something I'm working on, for instance, with decolonizing the curriculum. So there's lots of questions that derive from the idea of the politics of education, but I hope you gather one thought today and you keep it like a precious little thought. And that thought is educating the next generation is a political act and it has implications. And anyone involved in education should have a real hard think about their political views and what they want students to gather from that learning. I'm going to leave you with the news and I hope you have a wonderful evening. I'll see you or I'll speak to you next Sunday. Thank you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
The Daily Mirror runs a story on school places with headlines claiming that in some areas where schools are oversubscribed, nearly 9 out of 10 parents do not get a place for their child at their first choice secondary school. The article names specific schools in Wolverhampton and Lambeth as the hardest secondary schools to get into, with the primary from Liverpool named as the most difficult to get into. As children return to school for the new academic year, applications for those set to start primary or secondary in September 2023 are set to open soon. The deadline for secondary places is October 31st and January the 15th next year for primary. According to figures published in the article, 83% of applicants got their first choice of secondary school for September 2022, a small increase on the 2021 figure of 81%. The proportion of primary school applicants who received their first choice remained at 92%. A full list of England's most oversubscribed schools is published on the Daily Mirror website. In Scotland, council workers due to go out on strike next week have suspended their action after unions received a new pay offer from local authority leaders. The Unison, Unite and GMB unions agreed to suspend strikes in education and in waste services. The Unison, Unite and GMB unions agreed to suspend strikes in education and in waste services. The high-profile waste worker strike has seen rubbish build up in city centres but action was also set to affect schools and early years provision as members of Unison were set to walk out. Aberdeen Live also reports on possible strike action by Scottish teachers after what unions describe as an insulting pay offer. The 5% pay increase was rejected by the Educational Institute of Scotland's Executive Committee and they have opened a ballot for members concerning industrial action. Members of the union have until the 16th of September to vote on the action. Following the return to school for the new academic year, East and I reports on advice to schools around school attendance. The advice recommends close partnership work with councils, targeted family support and home visits to address barriers to attendance. These form part of a package of new approaches to ensure that more children are in school every day. The Department for Education is also launching a three-year one-to-one attendance monitoring pilot aimed at tackling the factors behind non-attendance such as bullying and mental health issues. The scheme will be launched in Middlesbrough this year before expanding to other areas next year. A new attendance data visualisation tool is also expected later in September. In some countries on the continent of Africa, a significant barrier to school attendance comes as a result of pregnancy in adolescent girls, according to Human Rights Watch. The organisation says that whilst many countries now have laws and policies in place to protect girls' education, there are still shortcomings with at least 10 African Union member countries still having no laws related to protecting the retention of students who are pregnant or are adolescent mothers. More on this story can be found on the Human Rights Watch website. In Wales, mandatory sex education lessons will go ahead in the new school term as the High Court rules in favour of the plan. A group of five parents lost their legal challenge to block the lessons in a hearing on the 31st of August. The group wanted to withdraw their children from the mandatory lessons or stop the rollout of relationships and sexual education altogether. Their parents had already been granted a judicial review to be heard in November. RSE is part of the statutory new curriculum in Wales, although half of secondary schools are delaying the new curriculum until 2023. This is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
Hello, this week I complete my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The topic today is why is my upload speed lower than my download speed? In previous episodes, we've discussed bandwidth and the more devices, the more demand, but internet service providers only tend to advertise their download speed. Why is this? Well, because it's higher. Let's take a trip back to the beginning of the internet for general public use. If you're old enough to remember dial-up and what we used to use the internet for pre-2006 when we were introduced to the Facebook boom, the internet was more like a library. You go, search for a book or a web page, use the book for your research, then return it. Traffic or knowledge is mostly one way, downloading to you. The only real use for uploading for the day-to-day -day user of the internet was to request a web page, a very small amount of data, and to send the odd email. Most things we did were all based on downloading. This is called an asymmetric connection. Downloading is given more bandwidth as it's the most used. This to date is still the fact. Most people download more than they upload. With data transmission being restricted by the size of transmission media being used, it makes sense for there to be more bandwidth dedicated to downloading than to uploading. Uploading has become increasingly more important for people since the development of apps like Facebook. Although developed in 2004, in 2006, due to increasingly better phone technology and the trend of documenting your life and posting it for others to see, the speed that you can upload has become more important. However, if a video or image takes a while to upload, we can do something else. If what you're watching stops, it's the end of the world. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. As we return to work, why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech for the new academic year. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So this is the end of our show. Thank you, dear listeners. We talked about the politics of education today. We saw how much education derives from a political choice made in most parts in the 1800s in order to create informed citizen with a critical mind who could then not go on to vote for the system in the democratic system they lived in. Now, the situation is very much different. Most of our students are in an educational system, but it seems to be in crisis in a society that is itself in crisis. So lots of food for thought. I'm leaving you with all these ideas. I hope they are fertile and make you reflect on your job as an educator, because being an educator is by itself a political decision. I wish you a lovely week and I'll speak to you or speak with you next Sunday at 5 p.m. Farewell. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.